I would say to your to your class, I would say to the next generation of college and university leaders to uh, engage some training in foresight and futuring to make that part uh, uh, to make that part of your uh, of your of your education uh, as as a university leader. And part of what it means to be a futurist is to is to scan and think broadly, widely about about trends and to not just simply focus on the immediate needs of 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 a particular college or of our particular industry. As I said earlier, change, both positive and negative, oftentimes comes from with outside our organization, outside our industry. And you have to think broadly. Uh, and 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 uh, and temporally in a very deep way about the future. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. Welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I'm pleased to be joined for today's episode by Dr. David J. Staley. Dr. Staley serves as Director of the Humanities Institute and is an Associate Professor in the Department of History where he teaches courses in digital history and historical methods and also holds courtesy appointments in the Departments of Design where he has taught courses in design history and design futures and Educational Studies, where he leads the Forum on the University. This is all at the Ohio State University. He's also the author of several books and publications, a frequent keynote speaker, often cited futurist and visionary on the future of higher education, and strategy consultant with Dutcher LLC. His most recent book is Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2019. This book has received significant attention within and outside of higher education circles. And so it seems fitting to start here for our interview today. David, welcome so much to this episode of Ingenious You. And I'd like to start by asking you about your newest book. Can you tell us why you wrote this book, why now, and who is the audience? Well, why did I write the book? Well, as uh, as you said in that introduction, uh, I spend uh, at least some of my time as a futurist, uh, and in fact uh, had uh, had a consulting practice uh, in the uh, early uh, early two thousands, uh, into two thousand ten or so, and worked with a lot of uh, different organizations, um, but not with higher ed. And I think it was uh, it was about. About eight or so years ago, that I decided to turn more of my attention, my futurist lens, uh, to higher education, uh, and so that was that was sort of part of the uh, the inspiration to write the book, as I've just become interested in in the future future trends around higher education. Um, 
I, you mentioned in the intro the uh, the forum on the university. This is a a, a, a group that I uh, what that I reserve the room. Uh, <laughs> a number of us at meet to talk about trends uh, impacting uh, impacting higher education. Uh, about uh, oh gosh, it was probably about ten years or so ago. I was involved with a group that was uh, brought together that had the idea of starting a new university. If you could start a new university from scratch, what would it be? What would it look like? And we didn't get the, the funding for it, uh, but the intellectual exercise was, was so fascinating to me. I thought, well, what other, sorts of, what other sorts of institutions could we create? And I started thinking through that, that idea. If I could start a university today, what would it look like? How could I, uh, uh, how could I organize? such an institution. And then I read uh, around the same time, I started reading the work of uh, the philosopher of higher education, Ronald Barnett, uh, who was, is, is in his writings is very encouraging of getting us to think expansively about new forms of, uh, of the university. So I think it was all those things that, uh, that combined together gave me the, uh, the impetus, the, 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 uh, the start I needed uh, to uh, to put uh, thoughts down on paper. Mm, well, congratulations on the book. I've read it, and it is a a both a provocative and a I think a very timely um, offering for the higher ed community in particular right now. Um, you know, I also think that the topic would make a wonderful course <laughs> creating creating diversity uh, uh, for for you know for the Bay Path doctoral program in higher ed perhaps. Well, let, let's let's talk further about that. I think that would be a splendid idea, and uh, and and this is the right moment too, uh, I think. And you use the word provocative to describe it, and I'm uh, really pleased to hear you say that because my initial impetus in writing the book, I think, was to be mm. provocative. Uh, that's why the subtitle is speculative design. But uh, as I wrote it, and by the time we finally published it. I realized that what I'd put together, I think also were very feasible blueprints for uh, organizational change, for, for, new forms of, for new forms of organization. So it moved from being, I mean, it's still provocative. I still hope it's provocative. So it moved from being provocative to something that's a little more practical yes, and pragmatic. Yes, no, and I would agree with that. I'm gonna come back to that in a second, but let me, let me ask you first, for those who haven't yet read the book, can you take a few minutes to just provide a high-level summary, um, in particular the key themes and what you consider to be the most significant takeaways? Hmm. Uh, if I could summarize <laughs> the book in a sentence, it's that uh, our ideas about what universities can become uh, are imaginatively mm -hmm. impoverished. There is, even before COVID-19, although I think COVID-19 has accelerated some of this, there is uh, there's a lot of talk now about uh, transformation of universities, change to the structure of universities, to the industry, but that our ideas about what universities can be are very limited and uh, imaginatively impoverished. That's one of the conclusions that Ronald Barnett uh, has raised, and it's a conclusion that I that I agree with. And so, um, what I propose in the book are ten models, ten thought experiments, ten blueprints for what new universities can, can look like. And so uh, I, I have, a, a, I suppose, a very particular sort of orientation about what I mean by innovation in higher education. I don't mean uh, new programs or new ways of teaching, but, but new missions, uh, what I call enterprise innovation, uh, that the purpose of the university is distinct from, uh, from what exists today or, or what, we, what we think of today as a as a university mm. well i have to ask you if you have a favorite blueprint um or two having spent as much time as you have developing them um and uh also where the inspiration for some of the different blueprints came from how how did you actually come up with each one so asking me to choose a favorite is like asking me who's my favorite <laughs> child uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know th there are some that I'm that I'm particularly uh, drawn to. Uh, one of one of which I call micro colleges. And so the idea of a micro college is a uh, is an institution that has twenty students and one faculty member, and that's the college. 
Um, and uh, there's there's actually some uh, there's some precedent for that. There's actually a college in the mm -hmm. Sierra Nevadas, Deep Springs College, that's uh, that, that that's built along a similar sort of model. But we would have obviously lots of such colleges, not just not just one. You would have you know hundreds, thousands of such micro colleges. And the idea of that uh, is is again one of my favorites. Uh, I'm drawn to uh, Polymath University. Uh, which is an institution where, uh, uh, at a minimum, uh, students are required to triple major, to major in three very different distinct disciplines. So they can't major in history and philosophy and English, right, or, or business, finance, and accounting. They would have to major in uh, business and philosophy and uh, dance, for instance. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's based on some ideas I have about sort of what can, or, or who contemporary polymaths are. Uh, those are, those rank among my favorites, I think. Uh, those I say it's a, it's a, it's a challenge uh, to, to, to select a favorite. The idea is the inspiration. That's, um, that, that, that's a good question. So uh, it came from sort of different sources. Uh, some of them were thinking about analogies. So, uh, so one of my uh, one of my ideas for university is called platform university, and it's based on the idea of organizing a university like a two sided business platform, like Wikipedia or Airbnb or uh, Uber, uh, what what are called platforms today in the business world. So it was just it was it was thinking about sort of what if what if we thought about a university organized in the same way. A uh, platform can be like like the Athenian Agora was a kind of platform. Uh, I would uh, uh, draw other sorts of analogies. Uh, what if we organized a university as a perpetual gap year? In other words, have students travel around the world engaged in projects, uh, not just one gap year, but sort of several of these yeah, experiences. Yeah, I think that one was my favorite to to tell you, to, to be honest. I like I love them all, but that one really resonated, I have to say. And maybe difficult to uh, to carry out in COVID nineteen, <laughs> the moment of COVID nineteen. Uh, but I also think that uh, uh, once once the crisis mm -hmm. passed, I think that's the kind of university that we could start today with uh, without much. Uh, well, there'd be, there'd be challenges, but I think that the uh, that the barriers to starting that up would be uh, would be right. pretty limited. Well, and it, it's a little bit of a takeoff off of the Minerva model, isn't it? But a little bit, yes, a little bit. Um, uh, although uh, the difference being that education in place is a key part of that right. education. Uh, I mean, you're living in different parts of the world in in Minerva, which is which is amazing. Uh, but uh, but but engaged in in projects wherever you are in the world is the key part of what I call nomad university. Right. That's what it's called in yeah, uh, in right. the book. Which takes yeah, but Minerva would be uh, would be a, yeah. uh, a parallel sort yeah. of institution. Wow. Well, it's it's um, they are all wonderful, as I said. Um, so let let me go back and thank you for the for the good summary and also the the deep dive on on some of those models. In the introduction of your book, you talk about the widely held notion that higher ed is notoriously slow to innovate or change, and point out as that as a result. Uh, many well-regarded management thinkers believe that higher ed is ripe for disruption. Now, at the same time, you suggest that this notion of higher ed being resistant to innovation uh, is is not entirely true. It's not borne out by history. So can you say a little bit more about, about why you've come to that conclusion? It sounds like a, a, a paradox, yeah. doesn't it, or a contradiction? Yeah. Uh, higher education is slow to change, but at the same time has historically been open to radical, what I call radical enterprise innovation. Uh, so the slow to change part is, and, and your listeners know exactly, I think, what I mean when I say this, that, uh, that any sort of institutional change is just, it's just very difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and we could sort of list these out here. Uh, and again, as, as you say, that means that, that, that management thinkers especially say, boy, it's, it, it, it's time for disruption. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, higher ed is a maturing industry, a mature industry that's right for disruption, disruption. Historically, though, higher education in the United States has seen 
uh, periods of innovation. In fact, if anything, it, it, it tends to look like a sort of punctuated equilibrium. So just take one case, the land-grant university movement of the 19th century. My institution, Ohio State, is a land-grant. Those were, and we, we think of land-grants today as just simply part of the higher education landscapes. Those were radical, innovative universities in the 19th century. Uh, I was doing some uh, research on the foundations of Ohio State. I teach a, a course on the history of Ohio State. And I found a document from one of the founders of the university who was saying, uh, we could use the land grant as an opportunity to create a new kind of university with a practical orientation. And again, that that idea that, that a university is uh, uh, could be geared toward toward practical subjects doesn't strike us as innovative. In the 19th century, it most certainly was. And so the land grant movement starts in the 19th century, the 1920s was a period of, of, uh, of experimentation in higher education, Bennington College, the experimental college at uh, Wisconsin. Uh, you could say the 1960s were as well. Uh, I think that our, our current moment, and even before COVID-19, but I think accelerated because of COVID-19, our moment is uh, one that's ripe for such a, uh, a moment of innovation in higher education. Well, and I, what I really appreciate about your perspective on this is that it's a more positive, uh, outlook than uh, so many who uh, who really beat up higher ed, if you will, for not being innovative. And I think you're contextualizing it in a, a more helpful and a more positive way. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that. Um, let me go back to you. You uh, were talking earlier about uh, the higher ed philosopher Ronald Barnett, and you have a quote. Uh, and again, I think this is in the intro of the book. Um, that uh, points out this notion that the talk about higher or the, the talk about innovation is oftentimes very narrowly focused in higher ed, typically around the idea of a technologically delivered university. Um, and I just want to read the quote because I, I really um, I really uh, liked it. Um, the problem is not that we are lacking in innovation, but rather that we suffer from a poverty of imagination of what this innovation might be. So from your perspective, which is a really unique perspective, both as a historian and, and as a futurist, can you say a little bit more about how we should be thinking about innovation? And I, uh, you use the word enterprise innovation. And drilling down, if you were advising a college or university board or boards, many of whom, as you know, are pushing their presidents and provosts to be more innovative, how would you advise them in this moment to be thinking about this? Well, uh, so um, we'll start, I suppose, first with uh, with what what we mean by innovation, or the way in which we talk about innovation today. And um, I've been I, I've been speaking to audiences for uh, probably close to a decade now about sort of innovation in higher education. And one of the things that I've noticed is that we can be uh, a little imprecise with that term. I think that uh, we describe any change of whatever scale or magnitude as an innovation. Uh, and so what I, the, the pushback I've given to audiences is if everything is an innovation, then nothing is an innovation. And we need to be sort of clear what we mean by that. So there's, there, there, there is a lot of change in higher education, but it tends to be change sort of around the edges. Um, there's a uh, the the management uh, theorist uh, uh, Steve uh, Steve Teig has uh, described this as incrementalism, and he's not just simply talking about higher education. He talks about all sorts of enterprises, businesses, and otherwise um, incrementalism. So we uh, or he also calls these faster horse strategies. So we do some things a little different. We you know we introduce Zoom in our classes, and that's a change certainly. But innovation to me. Uh, has to rise to another level, uh, has to have another sort of scale of, of, of significance uh, to it. So there's obviously a lot of, of change that's occurring, but that tends to be change around the margins. And that's not to discount that. That's not to say it's not important. It's, it's, it's only to sort of uh, wonder, uh, do we actually classify that as innovation and the innovation that, that, that we really need? Uh, and so to that end, when we talk today about innovation, we tend to talk about a particular kind of change. 
and it and it tends to be around technology that innovation equates to distance education, let's say, or delivery online. And this has certainly been the case, I think. Well, it, it, it started, I suppose, with MOOC mania back around 2012. Uh, but I think COVID-19 has, has sort of um, um, reaffirmed uh, that, uh, that discussion that we're having, that, that, that if innovation is going to come in higher education, it's, uh, it's strictly around technology. And, and uh, I have to say, before I get to the second part of your question, when I wrote uh, Alternative Universities, I was trying to very consciously stay away from, from technological innovation. Part of my thinking was to, to get the reader to think more broadly and expansively about what innovation can mean beyond the technological. And again, that's not to deny that, that there can be technological innovation, but that innovation does not equate solely to technology. Uh, well, as to the second part of your question about if I were uh, talking to college and university boards, for instance, um, and and you're right, there are uh, there are many of these uh, boards that are telling their telling their senior leaders to to be more innovative, um, and I and I hope this doesn't come across as glib, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, I I pay attention to uh, job listings, for instance, in the uh, in in the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed, and I I see the descriptions. Uh, for for senior leaders that are that are put together by you know by boards and by search firms and they all have uh, the word visionary or entrepreneurial somewhere in there. We seek a visionary leader, uh, and having had some experiences uh, going through some of these uh, sort of searches, uh, I think that not for every institution, but for many of these institutions, they're really not seeking visionary leaders. Uh, they're really not seeking innovative leaders, even though they say that. Um, to be a visionary leader is to really see a very different sort of future, to see a very different sort of institution. Uh, when I think in most cases, what, what boards are interested in is, is someone who will be a fundraiser and someone who will keep the institution afloat. And I think that, that that's particularly the, the, the case right now, again, because of COVID-19. Uh, I think that that attitude uh, is going to change. In fact, um, in fact, must change. Um, again, and uh, COVID is is part of that, uh, but it is uh, it, it is only a small part of it. Um, I, uh, I I read a quote um, a couple of years ago. It was in the Chronicle from uh, Philip Rogers, uh, who's at the American Council on Education. Um, and uh, he, they were talking about uh, the success of presidents. Um, and he said, for many presidents, success will depend on their ability to reinvent themselves and their institutions every five years to keep up with the pace of change. Mm. And I read that and I thought to myself, is that even <laughs> possible <laughs> to reinvent their institutions every five years? I'm not certain, I, I don't think I disagree with what he's saying. But I'm, I'm just thinking about the kind of the kind of institutional challenge that that represents, and so I, I guess I would I, I would advise colleges and university boards to to sort of take take that idea of visionary very seriously, and uh, and to have the, the the courage the audacity uh, to choose leaders and to empower leaders who will be visionary and entrepreneurial and engage in the kind of enterprise level innovation uh, that I'm talking about. Yeah, boy. And I, because you, you've lived on a college campus for a long time, you, you know, just how challenging it is to, to do that. And so when I hear that quote, when I hear Indeed. that quote, and I think about uh, what it would take to do something like that every five years, I mean, I can't imagine many presidents would would after doing that once, I don't know that you'd get a second, a second chance um, with the. Uh, and then we wonder about the exactly. tenure of uh, presidents, yeah, <laughs> the short yeah. tenure. So in theory, I, I agree with that quote, but you know, I think, you know, again, I think you've nuanced it in a way that that may be a little bit uh, more realistic. Um, so let let's keep going along this line in terms of your advice for higher ed leaders. And I'm I'm I want to think here about higher ed leaders who are on the front lines, like a provost or a dean, and they read your book 
and they conclude, wow, these are great ideas, but there's no way I could implement them on my campus or a little bit out of reach. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, how you could take any of these models or maybe parts of these models and adapt them um, to meet some of the present day needs and challenges that we're seeing? Um, well, I think you're I think you're right in that characterization. I think that um, that one impulse would be to, to to read the book and to apply some of these ideas sort of piecemeal uh, to take uh, to take uh, parts of them or to think of them at, at a sort of programmatic level, uh, in part because uh, you know, the challenge of implementing some of these. Well, I suppose it's it's it's, it's twofold. The, the first is just cost, as we've, as we've seen at a, at a number of institutions uh, who launch, you know, innovative, uh, uh, innovative sort of system-wide programs, that there, that there are a lot of upfront costs and there's a lot of risk associated with these. If they, I mean, if they fail, some universities are, you know, out millions, tens of millions of dollars. And so there's, a, um, there, there's, there, there's the, the, the financial considerations. And then there's the risk of sort of turning over uh, your institution to one of these models of uh, the kind of enterprise innovation that I'm that I'm describing. In fact, um, uh, I've been I've been asked in, in a couple of other contexts that maybe it's not incumbent institutions that could that could uh, bring about these changes. You'd have to start a whole new university in order to do that. Uh, I'd like to suggest another strategy, and I've been talking about uh, this strategy uh, as well. That, uh, that universities uh, begin to think of themselves as incubators. And I don't mean incubators like we have today. There are many universities have business uh, incubators or, 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 or technology parks associated with them. I'm talking about creating an incubator for new forms of the university. So uh, uh, there's historical precedent for this that, that, that gives you a sense of what I mean. So earlier I mentioned the experimental college in the 1920s, which was uh, created at uh, University of Wisconsin. So Alexander Michael John uh, was brought to um, uh, Wisconsin. In fact, he, he had written uh, what amounted to an alternative university in a, in a, in a magazine piece, uh, uh, essentially a great books college before there were great books colleges. And so the president of Wisconsin invited him there to essentially start that college within the University of Wisconsin. So the Experimental College had its own building. It had uh, at its height about 100 students, about, oh, about a dozen faculty, but it was its own college, its own sort of uh, unit <laughs> within the University of Wisconsin. It operated on, on outside of uh, Wisconsin's curriculum. It had, as I said, its own faculty, its own students. Uh, the Experimental College uh, lasted about five years uh, but of, of and and it was shuttered at Wisconsin. But then the idea of a uh, of a great books college, of course, was was born at St. John's and 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 a few other places. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about: setting up uh, a uh, one of these alternative universities as a unit inside an existing uh, an existing university. And it wouldn't have to be large. In fact, ideally. Uh, you start off sort of small. Um, in in the business world, it's called a minimum viable product. So maybe you start one of these alternative universities with 100 students and 10 faculty and a staff. And there's obviously a, a, a commitment, a financial commitment, but it's not necessarily tens of millions of dollars. Um, and the idea would be then starting a number of these experiments. Uh, in the business world, they're called autonomous business units. Uh, and, and, and autonomous means, you know, they have their own budgets, they have their own, their own organization, they're, they're sort of uh, off the grid uh, from the rest of the organization. And if they're successful, if they grow, uh, then they're fed more money, they're given more resources, more staffing, and the same would be true here. If this experimental college proves successful, you allow it to grow, you give it more funding, uh, you grow the size of the faculty, you admit more students, if it proves to be unsuccessful after a time, I don't know, five years, something like that, mm -hmm. you shudder it. It's not without risk, but what you've done is you sort of, uh, in, 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 again, in the business world, it's called sort of like portfolio mm -hmm. investing. 
you spread risk across a number of enterprises. And it allows you to be innovative, enterprise institution, but to spread risk. I like, I like that idea a lot. I, do you know anybody who's doing something like that? Well, you could argue that that's what uh, Southern uh, New Hampshire sure. did, the creation of their online unit, College mm -hmm. for America, that they've done something that they've done something like that. And there have been other sorts of instances uh, of varying degrees of success. Tiffin University, uh, probably about a decade ago, started an online sure. uh, unit, yeah. uh, Ivy Bridge, it was called. That was essentially an autonomous unit uh, of Tiffin right. University. And so I think that this that, that this is a model that is that, that that's very possible. Uh, the university as incubator, as incubator of new forms of the university. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start if you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. I came across an article that you wrote for the Columbus Underground in June, June 2018 entitled, What If There Were Another Global Pandemic? Now, again, this is June 2018. And in the article, you write that the possibilities of another global pandemic of the magnitude of the 1918 Spanish flu happening today seem disconcertingly high. So when I read that, it stopped me in my tracks. I, I have to know, how did you come to this conclusion in 2018? And uh, then I have some follow-up questions. So let me start with that. Um, well, uh, as a futurist, I, I sometimes say I, I, I get things <laughs> right every so often. Uh, I'd, I'd been uh, thinking about uh, a global pandemic, uh, contemporary global pandemic, actually for a number of years. In fact, it went back to my, uh, to my business consulting. I was already working with a... Um, with a, a large insurance company, unnamed, large insurance company on the possibilities around that. And around the time that I wrote uh, that, uh, that piece, so that, that uh, I write a monthly column for Columbus Underground on the, on the future. And, uh, and I chose that month as, as sort of the time to do that, to say that there are just a number of very disconcerting signs that uh, that we could be we could have something like a global pandemic like that. There had already been some some pandemics uh, uh, you know, fairly recently, SARS, for instance, uh, but not of the magnitude of 1918. Uh, I, I'll say I wasn't the mm -hmm. only one <laughs> who saw this. I don't want to uh, claim that I was uh, the only one um, doing this. Lots of uh, futures. You mentioned Brian Alexander before. Brian Alexander. Uh, was uh, was one of the futurists that that, that was seeing this. Uh, I think um, my scenario assumed a robust and sort of competent response that hasn't mm -hmm. been forthcoming. Um, I I I thought that the scenario where hundreds of thousands die was was mm -hmm. fairly unlikely uh, because of the the CDC because of the the, the, the infrastructure. 
uh, that we have in the United States. So I thought that scenario was unlikely, and unfortunately, that was uh, that was uh, um, that was the one that uh, came to pass. Mm. Well, looking at higher ed's response uh, specifically, and and you read all the same stuff I do. I mean, there's a lot of second guessing mm. going on now. There was an article just yesterday, I think. Um, and the headline had to do with um, did higher are higher ed leaders missing the boat or something in uh, talking about mm. uh, the response of colleges and universities to COVID. Um, now mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious again as both a historian and as as a futurist um, what your thoughts are. You know, as you look at how institutions are responding, um, are you seeing any uh, radical innovations at work? coming out of COVID? And then the last part of my question is, as you think about the long-term impact of higher ed, uh, of the changes that are now being undertaken in the crisis of the moment, um, any thoughts about what that means for higher ed going forward? So, uh, yeah, I, I read the article that that, that you mentioned. And uh, I, at one level, it's hard for me it's hard for me to fault university leaders for having to deal with this. As I said, I thought that the scenario of uh, of the widespread pandemic and and hundreds of thousands of deaths to be uh, unlikely. That's not to say that it couldn't happen, but I thought it was unlikely. And so the the scope of the crisis, uh, I think it again, it's hard for me to fault leaders. Uh, that said, uh, COVID-19 was not a black swan event. Very early on, there were people saying, oh, we couldn't see this coming. And as you say, uh, people like myself and others clearly saw something like this coming. Um, I think in higher, edu- in higher education, and well, and, and I don't want to limit it just to higher education because I've seen the same thing in other industries that I've consulted with. But higher education is such that I don't think that we do a great job at foresight mm. and futuring. I don't think that um, that 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 we that we engage in the kind of uh, foresight work that I engage in. And uh, as I say, I, higher education isn't alone in this. Uh, a lot of the industries I work with, they tend to look myopically only at their own industry. Changes that are happening in their own, own industry, they don't pay attention to wider trends that are happening in society or technology or in the the broader geopolitical environment. Um, because they, because these organizations feel that uh, change only comes from within. And again, I think higher education is very much uh, in, in this boat. My experience is that most leaders, not all, obviously there are, there are exceptions of this, but, but most leaders um, are not looking broadly or not looking widely. Uh, if we look to the future, again, we look to the, the sort of metrics that, uh, that define our industry. So we look at the, you know, the future of enrollment. So we look at demographics, for instance. Uh, but uh, are we paying attention to to technology? Uh, are we paying attention to what's happening in the wider geopolitical environment? Uh, again, there are exceptions to this, but as an industry, we tend not to do a great job at foresight and futuring. And I suppose that's putting a plug in to listen to a futurist. Uh, <laughs> so, but, well, I was going to say, you, I, I'm sorry. I think you're right on the money. And I, you may know that the... Um, Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, uh, actually does exactly what you're suggesting most colleges don't do. In fact, um, I heard him talking about that he takes his, uh, or he has taken his entire senior team out to the Futures Institute um, in California for retreats to do exactly the kind of exercise that you are, you're talking about. So um, he is, he is one of those exceptions to be sure. Yes. Well, and then you had also asked about the effects of COVID-19. What are the what are the longer term effects going to be? Um, The 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 well, the easiest one has to do with the nature of distance learning. And I think uh, it's, again, part of a broader change that I'm perceiving around remote work. It's not just simply schooling that's going to be remote. A a lot of organizations are uh, are going to um, permanently switch to remote work. We're already starting to see the effects of this. Companies companies are wondering, do we still need big offices? Uh, uh, we're already seeing, especially Silicon Valley firms saying, 
uh, let's recruit talent that will work remotely. And then instead of living in the Bay Area, uh, and which is you know, prohibitively expensive, that person can still live in Columbus, uh, for instance, have, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, easier, to, not, it's not easy, easier to buy a home here. Uh, cost of living is certainly less than, uh, than in San Francisco. Uh, and so I think remote work generally is going to be where, uh, where work is heading. And I don't see how colleges and universities will be, will be sort of any different. And so I think uh, we'll, need to, we'll need to think about uh, what remote education uh, looks like. Uh, but I think there are other things as well that I've been paying attention to. In fact, I, uh, what I say is that COVID-19 has accelerated a lot of trends that are already happening. And one of those, I think, has to do with automation. We're seeing uh, how, again, automation, artificial intelligence was uh, already a trend that I, I, I've been tracking. Before COVID-19, practically every talk I was invited to give was on the future of AI and, and automation. And again, we've seen, uh, we've seen examples of, of, of robots and, and, and other, uh, other forms of automation being used you know, for cleaning, for, uh, for work in hospitals, things of this nature. And uh, as as a as a uh, as an industry, higher education is not ready for a world of automation, and especially training people for such a world. Uh, you might remember that one of the chapters in my in my book is called Interface yes. University, which is about a university where humans and artificial intelligence learns together. Uh, and uh, again, there are very, very few leaders in uh, higher education that are that are thinking about what that world looks like. Joseph Oyun at uh, Northeastern University, one of the exceptions to that. And I think that COVID nineteen is going to accelerate that trend toward automation, and that's that's just simply a place where higher education is going to have to start Boy, thinking. Well, and you know, thinking specifically of your work and the blueprints you map out in the the book, and maybe others that are out there, you know, and uh, you, you just mentioned what's happening at Northeastern. Are there any that you think are better suited for periods of sustained crisis and change, which sounds like the new normal in higher ed? I mean, it, it sounds like we're really entering a period of, of accelerated change, um, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly. Well, so I mentioned yep. Interface University, and I am uh, more and more convinced that uh, that 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 university uh, will need to yeah. be created. Um, and so, so maybe some, some detail about that. I, I, I think that the future, so there is certainly one scenario where AI and automation takes every human job. I think it's unlikely, uh, but it's the scenario that, mo that, that seems to be, uh, uh, most people are fixated on right now. I think a much more likely scenario is that, um, Automation, autonomous agents, artificial intelligence will become part of uh, all of our jobs and all of our work. Uh, I was uh, I was giving a talk. I was giving uh, a talk on on sort of trends in higher education uh, at a uh, at a scientific research lab. Uh, this is back in December when we still used to do things face to face. <laughs> Um, and I was given a tour of the facility, and I was talking with a uh, with one of the research chemists. And he knew I was there talking about automation. He was describing uh, the automation that already exists in their chemistry lab. And the way he presented it to me was we are uh, teaching the machines. We are training the machines to be mm. team players. And the assumption in this lab is that the team is not just simply the, the chemist and the postdoc, but also the artificial intelligence is a part of the team. There are no institutions today that are training and educating us for that world. And so uh, that, uh, that's what I mean by an institution that I think will, will come out of this moment. Coming out of that is not just simply that interface, is that one of the things that we're going to learn is that there are some things that machines don't do very well. AI can, uh, as I saw in this chemistry lab, they do very good at mixing chemicals and doing those sorts of things. But a lot of uh, what I call human attributes, things like creativity and imagination uh, and uh, strategy and foresight, uh, these are things that uh, machines uh, cannot replicate. 
And so I think that we are going to discover that we're going to uh, educate for human attributes, not just for skills. I think so many students come to university today to acquire skills. A lot of those skills are going to be automated. Come to university to uh, to enhance and to cultivate mm. human attributes. And that suggests an even more prominent role for the humanities in the liberal arts going forward. You, yes, you see well, right through and, me. <laughs> and I know that's one of your other interesting models that I also really liked, one of the chapters. So um, let me go to the conclusion of your book. And uh, I think one of the main conclusions is that, from what you write, is that the future belongs to those colleges and universities that possess the vision to pursue a strategically differentiated mission. Um, and those are those are your words. So can you say more about what you mean by that, what that might look like, and what it would take to actually make that happen? <clears throat> I... Um... Through, through no fault of their own, uh, although certainly a fault of their, of their making, uh, I think that uh, many institutions of higher education today um, look all the same and their missions are the same. Uh, there are some uh, observers that, that say that higher education is becoming a commoditized mm -hmm. industry. Uh, and like other such industries, where uh, all the incumbents are pretty much offering the same product and all they can do then is compete on price. Uh, and uh, that, that certainly doesn't describe every institution, but it describes many institutions, I think. So uh, I have occasion or I had occasion when, uh, when we could travel more easily, uh, but to just simply drive around uh, uh, Ohio, parts of Indiana, mostly traveling on business, and I'm struck by all the billboards that I see for colleges and universities in this region. And I'm not going to mention any specific names, uh, but I'm really struck by how all the marketing includes the word you, Y-O-U, or some variation on that in reference to students. Our institution is about you. Come here for a focus on you. And I look at that and I'm thinking um, either all of these places had the same marketing <laughs> uh, agents, uh, or marketing firms, uh, or they really all have sort of the same programs and are really offering the same thing. And that's what I mean by sort of being undifferentiated. In other words, their missions aren't, uh, don't make them as particularly unique or distinctive. Uh, come here for our uh, athletic training program. Well, your competitor down the street has the same sort of has the same sort of thing. I'm not even certain here I'm talking about so-called unique programs. I'm not even certain that 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 those are sufficient in the current market. Come here because we have a leadership program I, or or you know fill in the blank. Um, there's um, uh, there's a difference and we and we again we say this in 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 business uh, but I think it applies very much in higher education. There are difference between market taking strategies and market making strategies. And most institutions, I think, are in market taking strategies, which are uh, trying to seize their share of the market. And of course, that market is, uh, uh, is, is shrinking, as, as every higher education leader knows. Uh, the, 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 the future population of students 18 to 22 years of age is shrinking. The demographics is, is getting smaller. Add to that uh, the challenges around uh, international students. Uh, and yet I think most institutions are still uh, uh, still approaching their strategy from a market taking uh, perspective. Market making is uh, uh, what in business we would call a blue ocean strategy. You find whole new markets or rather you create whole new markets. That is a far riskier strategy but it's also the one I think that is the strategically differentiating and one. And that's really market what your making. models are all about. Your, your model yes. are market is market making. making. And, yes. um, are there any institutions, and I'm sure there are, because you, you've actually mentioned a few in our discussion, but um, are there some really good examples out there um, that you could point to, either in terms of institutions and their entire uh, approach and their mission or uh, units within institutions where you see this happening that we ought to be aware of? 
Yeah, so I mentioned mm-hmm. Southern New Hampshire, uh, who are certainly one of those innovators, Western Governors University. Um, uh, within, uh, within programs, Georgetown has their Red House Initiative, which, uh, which I find very, very innovative uh, and is an example of, of, of this sort of market-making thinking. Uh, Arizona State and, and Michael Crow, I think, are, are, are clearly sort of leaders in this area. And of course, they've just launched a university design institute uh, that I think is sort of proof of this. Uh, and and uh, there are there are individuals. I'm thinking of uh, oh, Bernard yes. Bull, for instance, who's just become president of Goddard College. Uh, I'm I was just really struck by uh, by a college that hired a and and his title is academic innovation <laughs> expert in the role of presidency. I just think that says so much about about Goddard and its commitment to the kind of innovation, strategic innovation that we've been talking about throughout yeah, this entire yeah, I would interview. agree. I've been following him and uh, his writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's he, he, too, is very provocative um, and on the money, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, now, as you as you know, I think uh, we have a doctoral program in higher ed leadership at Bay Path where we uh, like to think that we're preparing the next generation of college and university leaders. And so if you were standing in front of or in front of uh, in Zoom uh, addressing our students, what would you advise them uh, as you look to the future about how they should best prepare themselves for leadership roles? I, I, any thoughts in terms of what it's going to take? for them to be effective in the institution of the future? Oh, they have <laughs> well, to they, read my book. And they will. <laughs> <laughs> that is already on the list. <laughs> well, and, and, uh, and seriously, uh, I, um, I give uh, a keynote uh, that I've, I've given over the years uh, uh, to, uh, to oh. leadership conferences, uh, other sorts of organizations that, uh, that I call Leaders as Futurists. And one of the arguments that I make is that uh, if you are leading an organization, any organization, but if you're leading an organization, you are by definition a futurist, whether you realize it or not. Because who else in the organization is looking ahead, anticipating trends, determining ways to position your organization to be able to leverage those trends? Uh, and so leaders are, to me, futurists, although I found that most leaders don't think of themselves right. in this regard. And so the, the, the talk I give is about mostly the habits of mind between futurists and leaders. And of course, they, they tend to dovetail uh, very well. So I would say, I would say to, your, to your class, I would say to the next generation of college and university leaders to uh, engage some training in foresight mm-hmm. and futuring. To make that part, uh, uh, to make that part of your uh, of your of your education uh, as as a university leader, and part of what it means to be a futurist is to is to scan and think broadly, widely about about trends, and to not just simply focus on the immediate needs of 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 a particular college or of our particular industry. As I said earlier, change, both positive and negative oftentimes comes from with outside our organization, outside our industry. And you have to think broadly uh, and, 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 uh, and temporally in a very deep way about the future. Leaders yeah, as futurists. I love that. And I would agree with you. Most leaders don't, uh, they don't think of themselves in that way. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. along with their boards. So um, great. Okay. So we're down to the wire. And we have a signature question on our podcast. Uh, This is something that we ask every guest at the end. And the question is this, and you've really touched on it. So I'm, I'm kind of taking you back and I guess asking you to pull some, pull some threads together. Um, And so the question, question is this, what do you see ahead for higher ed that we all need to be paying more attention to right now? And what are the opportunities for innovation that are available to any institution in that context? Well, uh, so I've mentioned uh, mm-hmm. automation and AI. Uh, that I think is every university leader needs to uh, have, have, uh, have those trends front and center of their thinking. Um, I think uh, 
climate change uh, as as uh, as the next big disruptor, uh, and and in the same way that the pandemic has been a disruptor, something that maybe maybe was uh, part of our awareness or maybe wasn't in our awareness at all. Climate change is going to have that impact. Just uh, as we record this, think about what's happening right now on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, institutions are going to have to um, prepare themselves for a world of uh, uh, where the uh, the impacts of climate change are going to be drastic like this. Uh, I think uh, something else that I that I've been paying a lot of attention to uh, is uh, the boot camp, mostly around coding boot camp. Uh, but uh, I am becoming more and more convinced that the boot camp is emerging as a competing model for higher education for a lot of our institutions, a place where a, a young person goes to train in a very, very specific area for, say, six months or so and pays, uh, pays money, but pays uh, uh, considerably less than, say, uh, four years of tuition at an institution. And then at the end of that process has a certificate uh, that, uh, that, that doesn't guarantee them a job, but there's job placement uh, in 95% of cases. That's the models for the boot camps. Uh, and I've been saying uh, uh, to higher education leaders for the longest time, for many of our institutions, uh, students could be easily drawn to a boot camp rather than to our institutions. And what happens when that boot camp model is extended to other areas besides just coding? And we could see all sorts of areas where that's the case. And the news a couple of weeks ago that Google is going to sort of get into this right. business of, of certificates around, uh, especially around mm -hmm. technical skills. Um, that I think uh, is something that we have to pay a great deal of attention to. Uh, as higher education and leaders. That's, that's where there's opportunity as well, because it's right. It strikes Absolutely. me that it wouldn't be that difficult for a college to uh, bring up its own series of boot camps and then find a way to give credit um, over time so that they. I think that that's something that we could yeah. very easily be putting in place. And as I say, in yeah. an expansive sense, we could be we could be doing boot camps around um, yeah. English literature. There are all sorts of areas that we could be reimagining, uh, reimagining uh, uh, re our institutions. Okay, well, that's a great, great idea and a great note to to end on. So, David, I am so grateful for your time, for your insights. I encourage everybody, and I have been since I read the book. Um, I've told anybody who's interested in the future of higher ed needs to read your book. So, um, thank you for writing it and. Thank you for being on the show today, and I, I will for sure be in touch. Uh, we need to continue this conversation. Thank you, Melissa. It was, it was a real pleasure. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Amanda Emmett. Join us next week for another Ingenious You conversation with Baypath University master educators, Dr. Jennifer Stratton and Dr. Tom Manella. The sudden and unprecedented shuttering of our college campuses due to the COVID-19 pandemic forced educators around the country to face the most jarring and rapid change of perhaps any profession in history. Within a moment's notice, faculty were asked to leave their classrooms indefinitely, and in many cases to recreate a learning environment that is 100% virtual. As challenging as that dictate was, it represents probably the best case scenario in what's proven to be an incredibly inequitable landscape during the pandemic. Whereas some colleges are conducting online learning in what's been described as a fairly seamless transition, Many others are struggling simply to connect with students to ensure that their basic needs, including sufficient food and access to technology, are being met. Just as college and university responses during the pandemic have varied widely, so too have been the experiences of our faculty. 
In next week's episode of Ingenious You, we have the opportunity to hear from two seasoned faculty members about their experiences teaching through COVID and how this experience has changed their approach for the better. They also have some valuable insights about how our institutions need to rethink our support for faculty, especially given that faculty are the one consistent thread that connects our students to our institutions now more than ever. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss out on this very thoughtful guidance from two educators who are leading the way in providing high-touch, high-tech learning experiences for their students. And as a closing note, we're winding down now on season one of Ingenious You and beginning to plan for season two. If there's someone you'd like to hear from in season two, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please reach out. We would love to incorporate your ideas into our next season of conversation. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and stay strong.